Our scripture reading today is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. So uh, last night, Johnny, our, our worship leader here, uh, while he was standing here, he, he invited everybody who's on the worship team to come over for a Christmas party, which was my perfect opportunity, because my wife sings uh, on the team from time to time, it was my perfect opportunity to snoop in his new house. I'd never been there before, and so, you know, you knock on the door and say, hey, I'm your pastor, I'm here to look at your things, and uh, walked in, and I, I'm kidding about the snooping part, but he did have the whole house opened up, so we got to wander around and look, my favorite thing to do, look at people's books and their pictures. So Johnny, I don't know if you know, is also a photographer, right? So he's got, there's, there's pictures of the girls all over the house, but there's a couple of pictures that Johnny's also in, and I saw these pictures, and I had to ask him, Johnny, man, this, this photo is from like eight years ago when the girls are tiny. Like, what happened? Because <laughs> this svelte, stylish, studly guy in front of me is not the guy in these pictures. And Johnny's like, well, look, we'd had a baby, and I'd given up, okay? Just <laughs> leave me alone. But I think it's a natural thing to wonder when you see something that's, you know, either good gone bad or um, Johnny gone now Johnny, when you see that kind of transition, um, it's natural to ask, like, what happened, right? The sense of what happened, like I see something going well and now it's not, 
is a, is a sense, it's a question that also pervades the passage that uh, was just read. Same passage as last week. We're going through the same passage four weeks in a row during this Advent run-up to Christmas because this passage is all about Jesus. It's a hymn, it's a poem, it's a song written to Jesus, what he did, why he became human, and why he died for us. And we're going through this passage four weeks in a row in this, this Advent run-up to Christmas in order to put Christmas morning kind of in context, in context of the whole story of the Bible. And as this passage was read, again, that sense of, boy, what changed came through for me. Did you notice it? It begins, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now he's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. Now he's the one through whom all things need to be reconciled. Jesus is the one uh, in whom all things hold together. Second half of this song, he's the one who, in whom all things have to be brought back together. Like, what changed? The two stanzas of this poem are, in a sense, a, a before and an after. Something changed. And when you see a picture like that, it's natural to ask, what happened? What happened? See, last week, Pastor Jeff uh, sort of explained the first half of this, this poem, verses 15 and into the first half of 18, talking about how at the very beginning, when the world was young, when all things were made, we were made to live in harmony with God, with everything around us, with one another, with ourselves. In short, he said, we were made to worship that's what we were created for. Everything that God made was made with this built-in sense of overwhelming love and admiration and praise for God, for who He is. But you get to the second stanza, verses 18 on down, and that sense of praise and glory and admiration and wholehearted love towards God has broken somehow. Something happened. So as we're taking these four weeks and we're going through this whole kind of big story of the Bible, uh, of how we were made to worship, but our worship has somehow been destroyed, we're going to talk about that, and how Jesus then on Christmas morning came to redeem our worship, and so that one day we would worship Him forever in eternity. As we go through this whole big story of the Bible, uh, this week, the second week of it, we're, we're pausing to read, in, read this text and read through this text and say, well, what happened? What changed so that our perfect worship had to be redeemed? What happened? That's the question we're going to try to answer this morning by focusing specifically on verses 18 through 21. Uh, 18 through 21, what happened? Let's jump in. Right away, start in verse 18, that second uh, sentence. He is the beginning, he, Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the beginning of the second part of this main poem, or the second main part of this poem, and as we get to it, I mean, immediately you see something happen. Death has entered the picture. The poem started in verse 15, firstborn of all creation. Now it starts, the second stanza starts in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. Death has entered the picture. 
if you remember the story I just outlined and how Pastor Jeff started telling it last week, that we were created to live in this perfect harmony with God, created to adore Him most of all, even as he was telling that picture, if you're like me, you were starting to say, well, that sounds good. That's not what I see in the world around me. Not because Jeff was telling the picture poorly, not at all, but because something changed from that way we were supposed to live to now. When I look at the world around me, I don't see the kind of harmony, the kind of unity that Jeff was talking about last week. When I look at my life, I think, well, I was, I was made to live in harmony with God, and yet I always feel somehow just a little out of step. Like as much as I try, I just can't keep him front and center. I know we were, we were made to be in union with one another in life-giving relationships, but it seems like most of our relationships are one misunderstanding after another. One, like daily attempts to find forgiveness and reconcile with one another and let go of the pain that was just caused the day before by someone else. Where's all the unity we're supposed to be experiencing? If we were created to live in a world that's perfectly suited for us, a world in which we feel at one with everything around us, not in some weird sense, but at one as in like, I belong here, how can we go through so much of life feeling kind of separated from the world around us? If you're like me, I feel like my brain is constantly about three feet behind my body as it goes through the world and I'm just trying to catch up with everything that's going on around me. Maybe most profoundly for some of you, if we were made to be at peace and whole within ourselves, why do I feel like so much of my life is one part of me and the things it wants fighting against the other part of me and the things it wants? And boy, would it be nice if there were only two parts of me fighting. <laughs> but sometimes it seems like there's a lot more than two. Why do I not feel whole in myself? What happened to take us from the world that Jeff described last week in which we were made to worship to this world when it seems like nothing is the way it's supposed to be? What happened? Well, that's what we're starting to get a, a hint of. The answer to that question is what we're starting to get a hint of here in Colossians 1, 18 through 21. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he was a formerly a Jewish rabbi turned uh, Christian, he, he wrote this letter and a bunch of others. Another one that he wrote to a church in Rome is the letter we call Romans. In that letter, Paul outlines or just basically comes right out and says, here's what I think is wrong with the world. He's like, my reading of the human condition, the, what we call the Old Testament and what I've learned from God, here's what's wrong with the world. He says, humanity, all of us, we have become fools because, he says, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And he doesn't stop there and just say, like, yeah, we're, we're worshiping little idols of birds or things like that. He goes on to say, in other words, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature or created things rather than the creator. 
and the result is death. The result is the ultimate disharmony or disunity or the final disintegration came upon us. And all of that, the Apostle Paul says, all of that he traces back to a problem with worship. She notices, as I quoted it, he said multiple times, we exchanged the worship of God for the worship of something else. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie, like, you know, buying a knockoff and trying to convince yourself that it's the real thing. We traded God, the glory of God, for the, the minor glory, the image of other things, like, like preferring a candle when you could have the sun. We've made a bad trade. He says we've, we've exchanged the worship of the Creator for worship of created things, like preferring your child's crayon drawing of the ocean instead of an actual trip to the beach yourself. This is a bad trade, but we've made this exchange. We've taken worship of God and replaced God with something else. So when Paul thinks about, okay, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with everything I see around me? He says, I think the problem comes down. The root cause of this problem, the, the basic through line that is in all of our problems is a problem with worship. It's a problem with worship, fallen worship. We exchanged our worship of God for the worship of something else. Take, take a look back at uh, Colossians 1.18, that very last phrase. It says, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Jesus, might be preeminent. That he, Jesus, might have the supremacy, that he might be first in all things. Depending on your translation, it might say different things. Now, preeminent there is not this idea that like Jesus won some divine competition and now he got first place. It's not the, uh, the divine equivalent of a Michael Phelps or a Simone Biles or your annoying brother-in-law who always wants you to know that he's doing better at life than you are. It's, it's, it's none of that competitive stuff. It's that he is preeminent, and preeminent here carries this idea of um, foundational reality, uh, ultimate truth, or the, the fundamental belief that brings everything around it into order. See, it's not that Jesus needs to have first place in your life because he won some sort of competition. It's that Jesus should be first in the sense that without him, nothing makes sense. Nothing else seems to fit together. He, nothing else seems to be where it's supposed to be without Jesus where he's supposed to be. Without him, uh, like the earlier verses said, nothing coheres, nothing holds together, nothing stays consistent without Jesus in his proper place. But the way verse 18 is written is that in everything, he might be preeminent. There's a sense of contingency. It could happen. A sense of future restoration. He's not preeminent now, but he will be. 
He's not first and fundamental for most of us now, but he could be. There's a sense in these verses that we're moving towards a state in which Jesus is once again preeminent before and over and first in all things. But he's not right now. Right now, it's more like you're wearing someone else's glasses when you don't even need a prescription. With something else in the place of God, you're looking at the world through lenses that are only going to make you run into things and hurt yourself. It's not going to work. Something happened to take us from the world in which Jesus was preeminent, like the first stanza of, of this poem, verses 15 through 18 said, to this one now where he needs to become preeminent again. Something happened. And the question, of course, is what? Well, the first part of the answer of what happened is we have exchanged worship of God for worship of something else. We have traded worship of God the Creator, and we have made created things gods in our own lives. That's the first part of the answer. The second part is everything we worship now is killing us. But before we can consider that idea, I want to step back for just a moment and, and ask ourselves this question. If we've stopped worshiping God, why do we keep worshiping? Why do we keep worshiping something? Because I'm arguing that the whole story of the Bible is the story of worship. We were made to worship God. We've chosen to worship other things. Jesus had to come to draw our worship back to him so that one day we can worship him forever without fear of falling away from it again. The whole story of the Bible and so the whole story of humanity is a story of worship. We're either worshiping God or we're worshiping something else. And I imagine some of you are looking at me a little bit askance, thinking, like, this is the first time I've been back in church in years. I have very specifically chosen not to worship anything. That, in fact, is the problem with the world, is people worshiping too many other gods, telling them to do too many different things, and that's what's causing all the problems in the world. If that's you, and even if it's not you, I think we should pause for a moment and remind ourselves what we mean by the word worship. Paul tells us in his letter to Colossians and the one of the Romans that what he thinks is wrong with the world is that all of us have chosen, whether consciously or unconsciously, all of us have chosen to replace the worship of God with the worship of something else. All of us have made this decision. We're worshiping something other than God. And I know that doesn't sound too bad when you put it in a real nice fancy Christmas script and it looks pretty, but there's still something wrong with fallen worship. If you uh, go to my parents' house for Christmas this year and you get down into the basement, you may find a big Tupperware container with all of my Cub Scout and Boy Scout paraphernalia in it. Somewhere on my sash of merit badges is the orienteering merit badge. I don't know if you're familiar with orienteering. This is that skill where you go out into the wilderness and you learn to traverse dangerous wilderness territories using only a map and a compass. Or in my troop, we found paths that were already there and were never in any real danger. But it was great because you had a map and you had a compass, you were outside and you got to do math. I mean, how cool is that? And as a boy, I really thought you guys would think that was funnier, doing math outside, but... 
whatever. I guess you're all nerds like me. When I was a kid, I, I was fascinated by that compass, right? By the little spinning metal needle, whatever you call it. I was like, how does that thing keep pointing the same direction, which would be that way, no matter how you turn it? It's like, there must be some really advanced electronics inside of that thing to keep that thing pointing north all the time. You guys are smart, so you know how it works. Like the, the, this big chunk of rock that we live on gives off this weird juju that we call magnetism. And there are like little magnet gremlins that all go down to the end of the needle and all want to point towards the king gremlin who lives at the North Pole. And that's why the needle always points north, right? That was how I understood it anyway as a small child. And if you change the word gremlin for Adam, it's not that different. It's more or less the same story. Uh, but the funny thing about a, a compass is even though we live on this gigantic magnetic rock that always pulls these little needles towards north, if you get some other magnet, which by necessity is so much weaker than the big one we live on, and you move it close to that compass, the needle starts going crazy and spinning all different directions until it finally aligns itself with the strongest newest, nearest attraction. My heart works the same way, and so does yours. There is a lodestone pulling on our hearts. We call him God, and yet all of these other little weaker magnets keep getting so much closer to the compass of our hearts, pulling our hearts in all these different directions, and we just keep doing this jiggy little dance until finally getting in line with this new attraction. Has that been your experience? Our hearts were made, we don't have a choice about it, we were made to be attracted to whatever is strongest and nearest. We will love something. We will love something most. Something will be the ultimate thing that draws our hearts towards it. And whatever that thing is, the best word to use to describe our relationship with it is worship. Because this is, a, this is an attraction thing. That, that whatever that thing is that's pulling on our hearts is attracting us by its beauty. And do you remember how Jeff defined worship last week? Worship is admiration that overflows in action. Another way you could say it is worship is attraction that results in orientation. Worship is whatever's closest to us grabbing our hearts and our reaction to it to, to align ourselves with that thing and get as close to that thing as we can to get out of it what we want to get out of it. To be human is to worship. And even people who don't take the Bible as accurately describing the human condition still when they look inside, use the word worship to describe what their hearts are doing. 
One that I can quote that easily came to mind is a now late uh, postmodern, post-Christian author, a novelist named David Foster Wallace. And in one of his speeches, he said, in the day-to-day life, the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the insidious thing, he says, is that Worship is our default state. We will orient ourselves towards something. And in his life, he said, life didn't make sense to him until he understood or began to look at his desires and emotions, and emotions through the context and in terms of worship. According to even non-Christians, to be human is to worship something, to orient yourself towards something as ultimate. Something gives you that context and that filter that makes the rest of life make sense. And I don't know what that thing is for you. Maybe it's your sense of, of purpose in your job or with your family. It's your sense of moral courage and moral clarity. Maybe it's your ability to walk into a room and get whatever you want out of the people in that room. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your success. Maybe it's your sense, you know, that I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. I'm the one in charge. And whatever it is that's closest to your heart, pulling the needle towards it, your whole life is going to follow that needle. Paul says the problem with the world is we've taken worship of God, and we have dethroned him and replaced him with something else. But even in the act of dethroning God, we can't dethrone the throne. It's still there. And something is filling the vacuum. Something in our lives, whether God or something else, is taking that center spot, is becoming the thing that makes all the rest of life make sense. We should probably stop and ask ourselves, well, what's on the throne? What's really there? Because we can talk a lot about God being there. And I do the exact same thing. I talk a lot about Jesus being on the throne, being at the center of my life, and then I find myself in different circumstances and situations where I realize, well, that's the farthest thing from being on the throne right now. You can ask my wife. She knows all about those, those things. All of us have something sitting on that throne. We are going to worship something. Whatever it is we worship, it's going to eat us alive. It's ultimately going to kill us. We begin to see that coming through in these few verses that we're looking together. Verse 18, I already pointed out, we already begin to see death enter the picture, the ultimate disintegration of ourselves and our environment and our lives and the people around us. Death has already entered the picture. Verse 20 tells us that reconciliation was needed. Something about what Jesus did, came to, he came to bring reconciliation, repair between, uh, the, between our relationship with us and God, us and each other, us and the world around us, even the brokenness, the broken relationship within ourselves, some sort of reconciliation was needed. And verse 21 goes further to describe some of what happens, what results when we worship something other than God first. He uses words in verse 21 like alienation. 
being removed from the unity we were supposed to experience with those around us. It talks about hostility, not just being removed from, but being in opposition toward the others that around us, and then evil deeds. So not only are we removed from, like we're stepping back and punching forward. We're removed from others. We are antagonistic towards others, and we are uh, intentionally destructive towards others. All of the, the harmony, all of the unity, all of the integration that we were supposed to see between us and God, us and each other, us and the world around us, us and ourselves is now disintegrating without Jesus at the center holding all things together. Everything is beginning to break down, to disintegrate. I mean, what happens when we fail to worship God? I mean, quite literally, the world begins to fall apart. You could think of it uh, using, you know, a model of the solar system like a mobile in your kid's playroom in a, in a nursery above a baby. You know, you, you see there's a center and everything else is revolving around it nicely and nothing is running into everything else. That's great. But what if the thing that's supposed to be at the center, the, the sun, suddenly gave the majority of its mass over to Mars? What would happen? There are nerdy people on the internet who have run the simulations. I googled it. And while I won't quote the math and vectors and the other words I don't understand, um, I know at least what happens is things start to get wonky. That's the technical term. Things start to get weird. Orbits that were previously stable become unstable. Uh, bodies of mass that were previously not going to run into each other start getting a little too close for comfort. Also, the earth burns up and we all die. The point being, what happens if, what's, if the thing at the center of an ordered, cohesive system suddenly shifts, the integrity of the entire system breaks down, and all the parts within that system begin running into each other and causing problems? Sounds a lot like a problem of worship, when the wrong thing is at the middle. This idea of worship being analogous to gravitational pull was one of the unique contributions that the great Christian saint Augustine uh, entered into our conversation. And, and by the way, when I say he's a great saint, I, I mean he was a great saint because he was first a great sinner. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, all the best saints were incredible sinners first. Uh, one author described Augustine as having, um, boy, he was basically... Uh, parented, abs he had absent parents, he had a sad childhood, he abhorred study and education, hated it. Uh, he was virtually addicted to food and intimate relationships. Uh, for a while, he was a single parent. Uh, he was addicted to the theater and the cabaret, and he spent most of his life studying weird, arcane philosophies and religions, trying to find something that made sense. He's one of our greatest saints with that background. So there's hope for us, but that's not really the point. The point is he spent the entirety of his life in this restless, relentless quest, this search for something that would bring happiness, something that would bring wholeness, something that would make all the parts of the system of his life make sense. And ultimately for Augustine, things didn't start falling into place until he began to think of his life 
in terms of worship. He says in his autobiography, The Confessions, he says, my big problem, my sin, was that I sought for pleasures and beauties and truths, not in God, but in his creatures, myself and others. With the result, he says, and so fell headlong into sorrows, confusion, and errors. He kept trying different things, a whole list of different things, money, success, power, love, parenthood, marriage, to see which one, if he put it as the gravitational center of his life, which one would finally make all the parts of himself line up and make sense. And one by one, as he tried all these different things, they failed. One by one, as he tried to put uh, the approval of his mother in the center of his life, it turned out to not be enough. Money turned out to not be enough. For a while, he was committed to one woman. They had a son. It wasn't enough. He achieved the highest levels of success that he could achieve, and it wasn't enough. None of those things, when placed as the gravitational center, the point around which everything else in his life revolved, when he put those things in that place, none of them were enough. It wasn't, this is his fundamental insight, it wasn't until he realized none of those things will ever be enough, it has to be God at the center, that the rest of his life began to make sense revolving around that. A couple years back, I was working on putting uh, my daughter Anna to bed. She's nine now, she was five then, and she was delaying the inevitable. So she started asking me questions, big theological questions. Daddy, what is sin? She knew how to get me talking. And I'm sure I've told you guys this story before uh, because just in the moment, uh, trying to explain to her what sin was, I, I really felt this challenge of like, how do you explain to a five-year-old that sin is want of anything conforming to the will of God? Do you just go for sin is whatever makes Jesus sad? Because then I don't want her to go through life being like, is God sad with me right now? All the time, right? I mean, because welcome to my life. So I'd rather spare her from that if I could come up with some other way. So we were laying in bed together, and she at the time uh, slept with this little white cat, stuffed cat. Uh, now she sleeps with a real white cat, but back then it was a stuffed white cat named Duchess. Um, she would sleep with Duchess, so I held Duchess up and said, honey, what would happen if you loved Duchess? more than you love mommy and daddy. She got quiet for a moment, started thinking about it, and said, well, you know, her face is all screwed up in concentration. I would probably spend more time with Duchess than I spent with you guys. I'd probably talk to Duchess more than I talked to you guys. I'd probably give Duchess more hugs than I gave you guys. Is that wrong? It's like, well, honey, that's what sin is. Sin is when you take the little loves in your life and you make them big. And you take the big loves in your life and you make them little. And all the things you do when the big loves are little and the little loves are big, all the things you do are sin. Because something other than God has become the biggest thing in your life. And everything gets all messed up. The Bible calls it unrighteousness, but it's more like wearing your pants on your head. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You can't cover your bottom with a t-shirt. 
that's sin. I didn't ask Anna, well, what would happen if you just stopped loving mommy and daddy and didn't love anything else? Because she's going to love something. Some little love will always replace the big loves when the big loves get little. Some little love in our lives, because we're the same way even if we don't sleep with stuffed animals at night, our little loves will eclipse the bigger love the closer they get to us. Bring this up to an adult level. What happens in your life when your job is the biggest love? What suffers? Well, you, you know, you have friends who've gone through this. Marriages fall apart. Kids become estranged. A relationship with God is only as, ever as good as your relationship with your job. You feel good at your job, you feel like God's okay with you. And in the end, of course, relationships, all that stuff falls apart and goes away, but that's fine as long as the job's okay, right? But what happens if it's closer to home? It's your family, it's your kids. You're only okay if your kids are doing okay. You only feel good about yourself as a parent to the extent that your kids are, are looking like the kind of kids you want to have raised. You, you raise them in the church and you're like, yeah, they're staying committed, they're taking their kids to church, like they're, they're, every one of my kids is following Jesus. I guess I'm okay. Of course, that falls apart in many different ways. Either one of your kids goes off the rails and your whole perception of yourself just shatters. One of your kids, or other than going off the rails, I suppose you could just crush them under the expectations of being perfect all the time. That's also an option. It tends to destroy the relationship, but as long as they're behaving, then we're okay. At least then I know I'm okay. I mean, what happens if it's your sense of, uh, of moral courage and moral clarity? I know I'm good because when push comes to shove, I always do the right thing. But there's that one time that you didn't, and it has been nagging you for 40 years. See, whatever we put in place of God, whatever becomes the center gravitational force, whatever draws us towards it, that thing, that thing that we worship will ultimately and inevitably kill us. We will crush ourselves underneath the weight of trying to live up to it. That, to me, is nowhere more clear than when I look at our high schoolers and our college students and I see the wheel that they are on to try to prove that they're worth something. I mean, you guys got to take 18 to 20 credits a semester. You've got to be in five extracurriculars, serving on leadership of whatever uh, councils are important to you. You've got to have the approval of all of the authority figures in the school and your peers, as if those two things can happen together. You have to have all of that while maintaining straight A's and making sure that, that your uh, um, parents don't know that you are dying inside. But the moment you stop playing that game is the moment the game stops pushing you forward and everything you're going for falls apart. You can't stop. All of us are putting something in that center place or other people are putting things in that center place for us. 
We're putting something there that is drawing us, pulling at our hearts. And just like worship, we are admiration for that thing is overflowing in action to get it. What's wrong with the world is that we don't worship God. We are worshiping something else, and it's killing us. To, to put this whole thing in just one sentence, fallen worship always fails. Fallen worship always fails. It always fails to get you what you're trying to get out of that thing, and it always fails to lead you to the wholeness, the happiness, and the personal in sense of integration that you're looking for out of life, the cohesiveness of relationships with others, the sense of being at one, like at home in this world, and the sense of being right before God. Fallen worship always fails. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Now, see, I'm tempted to stop right there because that's as far as we are in the big story of humanity. We were made to worship God, but we have fallen. We have dethroned him and put something else in his place. Next week, we start talking about what Jesus has done to redeem our worship and then ultimately to draw us into eternal worship with him forever. But I can't just leave us sitting right here. So I want to point out one thing. What can save us from that worship? Only something, someone that when we fail to worship him, he still comes toward us. Think about all the things I mentioned earlier, uh, job, success, money, family, all of that stuff. Any one of those things, when you stop worshiping it, when you stop revolving your life, centering your life on it, it abandons you. Stop giving your job 100%, it is not going to give to you what you're trying to get out of it, not unless you give it everything. Stop giving your school and your work 100%. It's not going to take you where you're trying to go, what you're trying to get out of it. It will leave you behind. If we are going to be redeemed from the pit of worship, fallen worship that we have fallen into, someone, something has to come down after us, which is what makes Advent the glorious holiday season that it is, because there is only one God that when you constantly dethrone Him, He comes after you. There's only one person that when you continually push Him off the seat, He reminds you what He's done again to deserve that spot. Every other God, anything else you can worship will abandon you and leave you for dead. Only one God will find you at the expense of his own death. So, what's in that throne? What's on that throne? What's in that seat? What is, what is sitting there in the place of God, in the place of preeminence, in the place of trying to make everything else in life make sense. What's sitting there, and is it working? Because I can guarantee you, if it's not God, it's not going to work forever. At some point, it will leave you and leave me for dead. But 
when we come to Jesus, the baby in the manger who became the man on the cross, and we see in Jesus God himself, though we had walked away from him, coming towards us to draw our worship back to him, the only God who comes to us when we continually fail him, when we see God in Jesus coming for us, and the big love again gets closest. I mean, not forever, not permanently, not all at once, but the, the, the little heart compass starts to do this little twing thing back towards this attraction again. And of course, something else gets in the way, but then it twings again. And as it does, and we begin to find our rest in God as the center, all of that disintegration between us and God and us and one another, us and the world around us, and even within ourselves, slowly begins to re integrate, to come back together into the one cohesive whole that it can only be in Jesus. Not immediately, not quickly, not without pain, but enough that we can be at peace with ourselves, one another, and with our God. Well, let's pray. Father, we can't wait until next week. We can't wait until next week when instead of focusing on our fallenness and our brokenness, we can instead focus on the glory of what you have done for us in Jesus, in pursuing us, in coming close to us, in bringing your attraction back towards us to realign our hearts with you. God, you have given us so much more than we deserve. I pray that we would find our hearts center in you. In Jesus' name, amen.